I'm going to shut down the virus. There is no federal solution. What we're seeing is an economic recovery that's durable and strong. Uh, the Biden plan is working. And now add the jobs disaster to the list. Biden's poll numbers are cratering to an all-time low, inflation ramping up with prices surging. If Donald Trump tells us I should t- that we should take it, I'm not taking it. I want to encourage everyone to get the vaccine. It is relatively painless. It happens really quickly. It is safe. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated. Welcome to American Freedom. This is Mike Pence coming to you from the national headquarters of Young America's Foundation. And uh, I'm looking forward to a conversation today. I must tell you, it's been an extraordinary two years in the life of our nation. And I, I think back on that day that President Trump asked if I would take the reins of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. It was late February. We had not had a single fatality from covid in our country um, in February of 2020, but how things changed. Uh, But I will always be proud of how the American people responded and how our administration led over the course of that year. We launched the greatest national mobilization since World War II. We deployed every scientific, governmental, medical, and military resource to combat the virus, and we assembled what what we called not just a whole of government, but a whole of America approach. And literally every single day in the early going, we worked uh, to, uh, to rise to the occasion. And the American people did. And, and today on American Freedom, here at Young America's Foundation, we're, we're going to talk with two of the people that served shoulder to shoulder with me every day on the White House Coronavirus Task Force about that experience uh, and the lessons we've learned. Because it it grieves my heart to say that over the last year uh, of the Biden administration uh, that uh, that we literally have seen one misstep after another in response to this pandemic. Think back when 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 we stepped in to lead the White House Coronavirus Task Force, uh, our nation was still reeling from the arrival of this pandemic on our shores, the origins of it in China. Uh, And at that time, we were required to reinvent testing from a standing start. We had to identify and manufacture billions of uh, supplies and medical equipment, gowns and masks and gloves. We had to develop therapeutics. And uh, and we were told early on that it would take five to seven years to develop a coronavirus vaccine. And before the end of this hour, we're going to talk to... uh, uh, literally one of the ar- architects of Operation Warp Speed about what was nothing less than a medical miracle. But to think that uh, with all the tools that we left them on January 20th, uh, 2021, to see this administration um, and our nation endure more losses in the first year of the Biden administration under the COVID-19 pandemic than the American people endured in ours. Just it grieves my heart, and there are reasons for it. And we're going to talk to we're going to talk to two great friends uh, who I came to respect so greatly in the course of this hour. Um, in just a little bit, we'll talk to Paul Mango, who has an extraordinarily important new book out uh, that we'll recommend to your intention, entitled "Warp Speed: Inside the Operation That Beat COVID, the Critics, and the Odds." But to start, uh, I've invited in the 18th director of the center for Disease Control and Prevention. CDC Director, Dr. Robert Redfield. Bob, great to see you. Thanks for joining us on American Freedom. Thanks for having me, Mr. Vice President. Uh, I think back of those days in the Situation Room, we huddled together. Let me just say, for the record, how grateful I am uh, for your integrity, for your leadership. You were a steady voice 
on the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, from very early on. But g- give me your broad reflections about our national response, and, and particularly those, those early days when, when we marshaled these incredible research companies to meet the need for testing and ultimately therapeutics in a vaccine. Well, first I'd have to say at the beginning is just to recognize, as people know, how grateful we are uh, for your leadership uh, on the task force and your, you, your ability to uh, uh, you know, allow diversity of opinion to be expressed to be able to help our nation make the best decisions. So uh, it was just a, really one of the honors of my life to be able to have that opportunity to work with you. You know, when the... Uh, I remember I was uh, on a vacation with my family, uh, all staying in a single house, all my grandchildren, children, their spouses out in Western Maryland when I got a call from my CDC folks in China that they had 27 new uh, cases of an onset. When was that? It was uh, December, December 31st, 19, uh, 20, 2019. Right. And they had 27 cases of an unspecified pneumonia that appeared to be linked to a wet market. It wasn't flu, uh, and um, and I got immediately into- That was the information we had right then. But, That's right. But we, we garnered information as time went on that it was a lot worse, a lot sooner. Well, very quickly. In China. Right? Yeah, very quickly. I talked to my counterpart, George Gao, uh, who we talked about it, and he said he had these 27 cases, and they all came from the wet market. I asked him what his case definition was, and it was unspecified pneumonia from people from the wet market. So I said, well, by definition, everybody comes from the wet market. You need to go look outside the wet market. Two days later, he called me back. He said, we have hundreds of cases. Hundreds of cases. Right. Hundreds of cases. Yeah, it so it was never linked to the wet market. That was sort of, a, in my view, a roost for people that wanted to start a scenario that somehow this was like SARS and MERS and came from uh, bats to some animal and then animal to human. Um, and in a way, that was one of the first uh, mistakes we all made when we called this SARS-like. Because SARS first, when it causes illness in humans, causes symptomatic illness. So you and I could just focus on trying to find symptomatic people. So what we did when we had the first 14 cases in the United States, which we talked about at the task force, um, uh, CDC worked up over 800 contacts of those 14 cases. And only two of them were shown to be having COVID-19. So we concluded this wasn't very infectious. But what happens is the way we worked up those contacts is we looked at them for symptoms. We didn't test them for the disease. Right. And so later, Ambassador Burks and, and we saw the Diamond Princess, we learned that asymptomatic transmission was really the mainstay of COVID-19. It wasn't SARS-like. And therefore, and that changed our whole public health response because our public health response originally was to focus on symptomatic disease. Once we learned it was asymptomatic, our public health response had to be with expanded access to testing right. and diagnosis. And, and we were at that point through the CDC and through laboratories CDC worked with, um, we, I mean, we were literally, um, we, we were kind of what I say kind of at a horse and buggy pace of testing when we needed to go geometric. That's right. So, And to me, it was extraordinary the way when we brought all the research companies in and we just said, you need to reinvent testing and, and we need to provide you the resources to do this. They collaborated. They did that. It was an extraordinary, to me, it was an extraordinary moment of American innovation. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and to think that we have testing shortages today, Bob, yeah. um, uh, almost, uh, you know, you know, the better more than two years uh, after we solved the problem is just um, it's astonishing to me. One of the challenges was you did a you know a great thing when you brought all the testing groups I remember into the Roosevelt Room, and I know as CDC where people were putting a lot of pressure on thinking that CDC somehow was going to provide testing for the whole nation. No, we were providing it for the public health departments. We needed the private sector. And to get the private sector engaged as you did and to see, you know, Abbott, Roche and others step up to the plate. But the truth is that was the beginning of what needed to be an expansive partnership with the private sector, private public partnership. Because today I've estimated that today we need between one and two billion tests a month to have the public health testing we need. And it's very disappointing that the pace that we started basically got stopped 
And as, and as you've heard Brett Jawar talk, I think, on the air, you know, pretty much from April on, there was no expansion in, in, in the first part of the uh, first year of the Biden administration of expanding testing. So we're way, we're way behind the eight ball on testing. Right. Eight, at, which, which, again, it's unconscionable to me that we're behind on testing two years after we solved the problem. Right. After we, we developed the innovative testing and they, we had at-home tests by the end of summer uh, in 2020. And, uh, you know... I, I always stop, pause, take a breath, and say, only in America. Yeah, only in America could you have done what we did, with not only with testing, but with supplies, equipment, therapeutics, and, and operation warp speed. And, and as, as you've seen in all of those, warp speed and testing and antiviral drug development, it's extremely dependent on a perspective that private-public partnerships are the solution, not public-public approaches. Right, right. And I think one thing... I admired about yourself and, and, and the Trump administration is they recognize the importance of the private sector. I remember when you needed to get ventilators, you were on an airplane up to talk to an auto company to switch over and make ventilators, or you went out when we needed masks, you were out to 3M. Do you remember when, I remember the, the president, uh, we were at one of our early press briefings for the task force. And the, the Democrats tended to go from one criticism to the next to the next. And we were working each problem. And when, when Paul Mango gets in, I'm going to talk to him about he's made some extraordinary observations in his new book about there's just been a loss of pace and focus and urgency in this administration. But you remember those days. I mean, we, we just we scienced every problem, didn't we? we said, Here's the testing is the problem. Supplies are the problem. But I'll never forget one of the things the Democrats were saying was, was uh, why aren't you using the Defense Production Act, uh, which for those of you listening, it's a law that allows the federal government to order companies to manufacture, do things or provide services in a time of national emergency or war. And the president and I were walking down the hallway and and he said to me, why aren't we using the Defense Production Act? And I said, because nobody said no. And he stopped and looked at me and said, that's a great answer. And, and then he went out to the press shortly thereafter and That's told right. him exactly the same thing. I said, every company we called. Said yes. Said, what do you need? Mm -hmm. And I, when do you need it? It was it, only in America. I, I remember when you went to, I think it was Ford, to do ventilators. I mean, you didn't have to tell them they had to do it. They did it on their own. Drop what they were doing. Or when you went to 3M and said, could we get those KN95s at Home Depot and kind of get them repositioned for the response? Just, it, was, it was incredible. Only in America. Listen, um, you, you've been out just in the last several days um, on, on the issue of where this uh, pandemic originated. Now, we all know it came from China, but as you said at the, at the beginning of our conversation, the, the, the theory that it came from a wet market that it was naturally caused. I, I can say to everyone listening that in the Situation Room, uh, Dr. Robert Redfield you always said this came from a lab. You always said it. And I remember the times that I pressed a Tony Fauci uh, about what was it, was it possible at all that this had come from a lab, that this was in any way manufactured. And you remember I was assured again and again and again that it was not, that it did not have the characteristic of it. Why early on were you at many times the lone voice at the table in the White House task force saying this came from a Chinese lab? Well, you know, Mr. Vice President, it really came first from a reflection of, um, again, I speak as a virologist, a clinical virologist, how viruses really come into man and how they act when they do come into man. So you look at the prototype SARS, came into man in 2003 from a bat to a civet cat and then into humans. But SARS never really learned how to go human to human very well. And so as you and I sit here today, 19 years later, less than 10,000 people have been infected in the world. Right. And MERS, where we, we had a case of the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in Indiana, the first when I was governor, the first one in the country, MERS also was not especially contagious. Very deadly, but not especially contagious. Exactly right. right. So it came from a bat to a camel. And then to humans, and as we sit here nine days, uh, nine years later, it's less than ten thousand people. And so, so neither of these viruses could go so human to when human. You were seeing how contagious this was from go. That's what said to you, this this was this didn't come from a, a wet market. This didn't come animal to human. 
Yeah, Is I that said. The core of it? Yeah, I said core of it. It was biologically non-plausible that this virus went from a bat to some other animal to humans and now became one of the most infectious viruses that humans ever seen. This virus had to take a detour. That detour had to be a laboratory that taught it how to become infectious for man. And we have evidence of that. The papers were published in 2014 that actually show that laboratory was teaching bat coronaviruses how to infect human tissue. And they actually published that they succeeded uh, by developing bat coronaviruses that could bind to a special receptor we call the ACE2 receptor that allows it to affect humans. But you know what? It's so interesting, and this is what makes me upset that there's not an open, rigorous debate about right. this. Right. Is COVID two no longer can infect bats? It only can infect humans. It was it was educated to how infect humans, and it's important because once this virus got a head start on being human to human transmissible. It meant we had to be prepared for one variant after another. It was going to continue to evolve to become right. more transmissible, and it has. And it has. And Whereas, it has. if you Even look back, the Biden as, administration said we never saw it coming. We never saw that there'd be the Omicron. We never, but if that's you, that's what viruses. Yeah, do. and if you look at SARS and MERS, we don't have variants of any degree. Why? Because yeah. they can't replicate in humans. So this virus I mean, yeah. was very different. If I could go back and start over again, but I mean to tell you, the people that are listening, you know. Um, and, and you're listening to the voice of Bob Redfield, uh, who was the director of the CDC during the Trump-Pence administration. I, I'm just telling you, this, this guy was at, is sitting at the table for the White House Coronavirus Task Force. You always said this came from a lab. So um, it's one of the reasons why I don't I don't I, I said if China doesn't come clean on the origins of the coronavirus, if, if they don't stop abusing Uyghurs, if they don't stop. We shouldn't be going to the Olympics. That's a topic for another show. But uh, we we got we to hold China accountable for this. Well, and you I, actually said earlier, I think it's fascinating. You said you think the wet market theory was a ruse to begin with. Yeah, I that, think it was. That a, China just said, we're testing people that, that, that came down with some pneumonia-type virus uh, in a wet market, but they were— it was all misdirection. Like, that's where it came from. Well, I think in retrospect, we now know they had already had a significant epidemic that started back in September and October. Uh, and the wet market wasn't until the end of December. In now. September and October. Yeah. How important was it when President Trump shut down all travel from China? How much time did that buy us in as this thing was striking uh, the Seattle area, yeah. New York, New Jersey. You know, as one who advocated uh, the shutting down traffic uh, from China mm -hmm. uh, back in the end of January, I think it bought us time. Unfortunately, it didn't stop anything, cause no. it, but it's brought us time. And I think Paul will talk about later with you, that time was really well sent because at the end of it, we got vaccines within seven to eight months, which right. th th those months that we that saved. Was, that was the other thing. Let me get, before we before we run up on, on time, let me also say, you know, the 45 days to slow the spread was also about buying time. That's it. Right? That's I mean, exactly what right. we had heard of the, of the horrific realities in northern Italy was that, remember those reports that people were literally dying because there were not beds, there were not ventilators, there was nowhere to put people. And we were on a trajectory in places like New York, New Jersey, Seattle, New Orleans, Detroit, and that was where I, I give the president tremendous credit that with the consultation of this team, we said, you know what? And I, 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 I compare it to kind of taking a knee uh, in a in a you know an athletic contest where you okay, let's just take a knee. We said, you know what? We need 15 days to slow the spread so we can spin up testing, so we can spin up medical supplies and equipment that we can preserve capacity in our healthcare system. It becomes 45 days to slow the spread. But we, when we opened up America again, it was tantamount to the fact that, that despite what the Biden-Harris team was promising all election year about defeating the virus, we were, we organized a response to the virus, right? Making sure our health community and American families had what they needed to be able to combat it. But, um, as you said, whether it was shutting down travel to China, whether it was the 45 days to slow the spread, th th this was never about stopping the virus. This was about making sure that we had a national response and families and healthcare workers. Yeah, it was needed. about giving us time to look at how we can right. move forward in a safe and responsible way. I mean, many people don't remember. I think I know you do, but in New York originally, uh, this virus had over 5% mortality. 
Right. Now, it wasn't the virus that was causing the 5% mortality per se, but it was that the epidemic was overwhelming the health system and the health system could no longer function efficiently. And so we saw a lot of unnecessary deaths because the health system was overwhelmed. And that's always been the key is how do we maintain the effectiveness of our health system as right. we continue to respond to this virus. Right. Um, uh, Bob Redfield is with us. He was the uh, 18th director of the CDC, incredible. Um, can I just, and I get your opinion before I cut you loose. Um, so uh, one of the things uh, we were involved in, uh, our American Freedom Group, was an amicus brief combating the unconstitutional mandate uh, on employers for vaccines. I'm incredibly proud of the vaccine. You all will hear before we sign off how proud I am of Operation Warp Speed. Uh, but I, it's, it's a decision of every American should make, and the Supreme Court struck that down. They, however, allowed, and you're a healthcare professional. You led the CDC. They allowed the vaccine mandate on healthcare workers to stay in effect. Um, and, and let me tell you why that really bothers me. I, I'm, I don't have the healthcare background, but Bob, I remember that whole first year before a vaccine was available, we told healthcare workers, you have to go to work. Essential workers. You're we essential workers. And we worked to have supplies with testing there and they did they uh, they have been we have heralded the what they i still don't think our healthcare workers have gotten enough credit for what they did in 2020 it was absolutely incredible what doctors and nurses and healthcare workers did they took the beach without body armor and and didn't hesitate didn't hesitate to do it and am, am i wrong in feeling that the idea that uh that that healthcare workers that don't want to take a vaccine are being are being fired is just again I think it's unconscionable to say to people who took the beach without body armor that now if you won't put the body armor on you know what you can't go do your job you know I'm very supportive of vaccines as you know I think it's the most important gift of modern I, I, science, I science to modern medicine and I know you are um, but I'm very much against mandates I mean I I feel that when one mandates something to do something they choose not to want to do, you actually reinforce their decision not to do it. You reinforce vaccine hesitancy by mandates. If this is really something in the best interest, we and should President be able to, Biden said we're not doing mandates. Yeah, we should. We At should. The top of this podcast, you heard the clip. We should be working with we're not people do mandates. to show them that this Amazing. is a medical decision that has advantage for them. Second thing I will say, I'm very much against not giving credit for natural immunity. If I've been infected to this virus right. and I have an immune response right. that's even better than the immune response I get from vaccines, why should somehow I be required to get a vaccine when I've got an immune response better? Finally, the CDC came out two weeks ago or a week ago, uh, actually, with studies to show that natural immunity can even be better than vaccine-induced immunity. We should embrace that. So I'm not in favor of mandates. I think it's a mistake. I think it's great for healthcare workers to set the example and choose to get vaccinated. I thought the worker mandate that was up there was really uh, not going to help us. It was going to convince more and more people to lock themselves into vaccine uh, hesitancy. Uh, and so um, I, I agree with you that our, our approach shouldn't be mandating vaccines or mandating masks. It should be making the public health argument for and let individuals make the uh, health decisions that's in, their, that's in their individual best interest. Right. There's so much I could talk to you about. And, um uh, you all can catch uh, Bob Redfield on a uh, television screen near you. Um, we'll also put out some good links for this uh, podcast, American Freedom, for some of your recent interviews. Bob, uh, you and I became very good friends. Uh, you're a man of faith and integrity, and uh, my respect for you is boundless. But to have a chance to reflect on some of these experiences with you on this American Freedom uh, podcast means a great deal to me. And I, I just want our listeners to know, he, this guy got it right. Uh, and he's a self-effacing person. He's a, he speaks in modest uh, tones, um, but uh, uh, you served the, the country with extraordinary uh, distinction. Uh, and, and, uh, and I'll always be grateful uh, to have had a partner like you on that White House Coronavirus Task Force. Can I ask you one more thing? And this may be, look, you're, uh, you led the CDC. Uh, can you comment at all on the back and forth 
advice we've gotten from the CDC under this new administration. It just uh, it seems to me with you know they recommended masks, then they didn't recommend masks. They they didn't recommend boosters. Now they're recommending boosters. Um, you remember the way we handled it under the Trump Pence administration, and that was we we looked to you and you told us here's what we believe the policy should be. Is it, do you sense some politics coming from Pennsylvania Avenue that's been shaping messages out of the CDC, and and how do you feel about that? Yeah, I can say for sure that being the CDC director is a tough job. Uh, and, you know, I've made a call to Rochelle when she congratulated her when she got it, and I told her one thing she's going to not get from me is public criticism, as uh, as Tom Frieden and and, and, uh, and, and uh, Rick Besser did to me almost on a nightly news basis. I will tell you, though, you know, I did get nervous with the administration with when the CDC director made some very important comments with the CDC background behind her. And the next morning, the White House got up and said she was not speaking as the CDC director. She was speaking on her own personal opinion. So I do think there's been a lot of messaging, you know, and how much of that... But com- I'm right in remembering it's been back and forth, right? Yeah, it's been back wear and mask, forth. And mask, I don't know booster, don't how much of that was the decision that this administration made to bring in a medical director to the White House that wasn't the CDC director. And I do think a lot of the messaging is coming from the medical director of the White House and maybe less from the CDC, and then it is that back and forth. Uh, So it has paid a price. I think the American public is confused. And when you ask them, you know, they're they're confused about the messaging. Um, I will say, and you know I feel this way, the men and women that serve at CDC, I think they're outstanding public servants, but I do think that um, that it has been complicated to get uh, messaging that I think is less confusing. I think the, uh, you know, I think that this administration's had more confusion in messaging than I can remember we ever had in terms of this, as you said, booster, no booster, well, when you right. do a booster. Well, and I, I'll never forget, I was sitting on the couch a week after we left office, saw President Biden say, quote, you know, when we came in, we didn't have a vaccine. Yeah. I remember getting really upset uh, with the chief. I I, got very upset with the chief of staff, his chief of staff, because he said that we handed him a mess is the word he used. Yes, he did. A mess. And that they were going to get to a million a day, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, within no time. And I had to, you know, I usually don't say anything, but I had to say I was very disappointed rather than congratulating us for the football that we handed them. Right. And take it further. Because when we handed him the football, we were already doing a million a day for we like, t- right. like on three, January twentieth, twenty twenty one, and this is this, it was very disheartening to see people be political rather right. than say congratulations for what we, you did I, and thank I think, you. Look, I think it contributed to vaccine hesitancy. I agree with you. I mean that these people, and it's a good lead into our next guest. Paul Mango is going to come with us. He was really the. Um, just the right arm of Operation Warp Speed and has written a very important book about it. But I, I think the fact that President Biden came in and did not give President Trump uh, or all this this great team that he'd assembled or more or, or just as importantly, the incredible American companies that had developed these vaccines, the credit deserved. I, I think it it uh, I think it caused vaccine hesitancy that wouldn't have otherwise. So. Um, I, I kept a plaque on my desk uh, all four years that I bought at the uh, Reagan Library. It was a replica of what was on the 40th president's desk. It says there's no limit to what a man can accomplish in this world if he doesn't care who gets the credit. And uh, that was not the attitude we got from the Biden administration when they came in. They were they refused to give credit where credit is due, not just to President Trump, to our team, uh, but I think to the American people. Uh, because I think what we did during your tenure as CDC director in those early difficult days, uh, I, I will always believe with all my heart, saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And um, it, it'll be greatly to your credit for the rest of your life. I appreciate it. I'll say one thing. Uh, in February of, of 2020, I had CDC come in and give me a briefing. Um, and that briefing uh, told me that they estimated conservatively by September 2020 million Americans would have lost their life. Now, you and I know we were sad for all of the lives lost. In September of that year, we had a little less than 200,000 Americans that had lost their life. Still very sad and too many. 
But you can imagine how I felt when I was told uh, eight months earlier that it was going to be 2.2 million. million. And I, I, only in America and only with uh, compassionate, principled leadership like yours. Um, Dr. Robert Redfield was the director of the CDC. Bob, thank you so much for your service to the country. Thanks for joining us for American Freedom. Thanks for having me. God bless. Be right back. I'm Larry O'Connor, talk radio host on WMAL in Washington, D.C. And in addition to my radio program, I have the distinct honor of being involved with Young America's Foundation as a member of YAF's National Journalism Center Board of Governors. Having worked in the media for most of my career, I know firsthand the importance of fact-based, truthful reporting and the danger of allowing the liberal mainstream media to influence the rising generation. Since 1977, the National Journalism Center, founded by the late M. Stanton Evans, has trained scores of aspiring conservative journalists in the values of responsible, balanced, and accurate reporting. Weekly seminars and on-the-job experience over the course of 12 weeks provide participants with the tools to become leaders in combating bias in the mainstream media. In addition to classroom training, NJC's interns gain firsthand experience at leading alternative media outlets, including The Daily Caller, Federalist, Town Hall, Washington Times, Fox News, and many, many more. For more information or to learn more about opportunities with the National Journalism Center, visit yaf.njc.org or call 800-USA-1776. Welcome back to American Freedom. This is Mike Pence coming to you from the National Headquarters of Young America's Foundation. And we are talking about the coronavirus pandemic. Our thanks again to Dr. Robert Redfield, CDC, uh, for joining us. And before I introduce our next guest, I want to let you all know I'm going to be back on the road for Young America's Foundation. I'll be speaking at Stanford University on February 17th, 2022. Uh, it will be at Dinkle Spiel Auditorium. You can go to yaf.org for more information, for tickets to attend. Uh, this will be my third time out on campus. This Young America's Foundation is the premier conservative organization reaching college and university campuses around America. And it's my great honor to be traveling for YAF. So check it out. February 17th, Stanford University. Would love to see you there. Again, welcome back to American Freedom. Uh, this is Mike Pence. Um, we're now joined in studio by someone who was also a key member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Paul Mango was a deputy chief of staff for policy at HHS, but he served as the formal liaison to Operation Warp Speed. And those of us who worked with him know that in a very real sense, uh, he was the connection between the extraordinary innovation of Monseslawi and our research companies and the literally billions of dollars uh, and energy that we brought from the federal government uh, to drive what was nothing short of a medical miracle. Uh, I, I will tell you, as, as Bob Redfield said, I don't believe in mandates. I think people should make whatever decision you want to make. But I, uh, I couldn't be more proud after having been told early in the coronavirus pandemic that it would take five to seven years to develop a vaccine if we could get one that within nine months we had three safe and effective vaccines and we were vaccinating a million people a day the day we left office. Paul Mango, thank you for your incredible role in that and uh, welcome to American Freedom. Thanks, Mr. Vice President. I appreciate you having me here. Well, it's it, it really is extraordinary, but talk to me. I mean, you remember those early days yeah. uh, when uh, when when President Trump and I pulled together, I was tapped to lead the task force in late February of 2020. But within a week, we had all these scientific research companies around the cabinet table. You remember that meeting. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about that they could develop therapeutics. Those could come fairly quickly in a matter of months, three, four, five months. But, uh, but it wasn't unrealistic when they said, the vaccine could take years, could take more than five years. Tell me what tell me what your sense of that was in that moment and how you felt when President Trump said not good enough. We've got to change it. We've, we've got to have it faster than that. Yeah, well, um, first of all, uh, I talk in the book about President Trump and his role, and he played the role of what I call executive sponsor. As you know, my background is in business. Mm hmm. And every major business transformation needs an executive sponsor, someone who flies air cover for them, someone who gives them unlimited resources, and someone who makes himself available all the time uh, whenever there's an issue that needs to be resolved. And that's precisely what 
President Trump did. So our success started at the top, uh, very much at the top. But I think, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about the private sector, the critics, uh, others. I don't think they had the inveterate belief that we did, that you did, that the president did in the private sector. Um, we interviewed Monsef Slawi in. I think there's really I think that's a mouthful. I hope you all got that. Yeah. I, I do think it's been a different attitude to this administration which is where they're going to run testing centers out of Washington, D.C. and in states. We always said that we have to have a whole of America approach and we turn to the private sector from go. And that did come from the president, from my experience, and everybody around the table got it. Right. And in the book, I talk about what we did was enable the private sector to be successful. They delivered the success. And that's a very important principle. And as I said, it's an inveterate belief that you and the president and Secretary Azar and everyone had, because many of us came from the private sector. Many of us had seen what happened with the ventilators. You heard Dr. Redfield talk about the ventilators a little bit earlier, 100,000 manufactured in several months. That was before warp speed. Uh, So there was already uh, success. And I talk in the book about, um, and I think the American people need to understand this, with very few exceptions, not a single federal employee touched a dose of vaccine before those hundreds of millions were injected into Americans' arms. Went from factory to McKesson to UPS to FedEx to Walgreens to CVS. I remember. I, we didn't I, touch it. Paul, I just remember. I remember one of the briefings that I was at for Operation Warp Speed. I think it was over at HHS. Yeah. And I got you there. I got Monsa Slawi. I got uh, Alex Azar, who did a terrific job as secretary of HHS through the course of this. And uh, we'll talk to him in the days ahead on American freedom. Um, but you're right. I mean, people they developed in the private sector, then packaged, then the McKesson group delivering it. And right to the we worked with governors to find where's the need? Where do you need it shipped? It's shipped to those places and then it's administered. Right. On site. You're right. Never I, went into yeah. a government warehouse at any point. Nope. And I talk about your visit in the book. It was in November 8th of 2020, and we were adjudicating distribution and allocation right. uh, principles, if you will. And General Gus Perna, I just have to say a few words about the Army Materiel Command. Incredible. Uh, this is a team, and, and everyone knows Gus Perna, but they don't know he had a three star, two star, and a one star, and a bunch of colonels and a bunch of majors all of who had been together for close to 20 years serving combat operations in the Middle East. These were the best logisticians in the world, and every little detail was taken care of. And when uh, go time came on uh, December 14th, this is the day we first distributed vaccines, 99.99% of all deliveries were on time to the right place, to the right person, under stringent transport conditions working with the private sector working with and the being sector. organized by the best logistics minds in the american military yeah. that's you know and you heard bob talk about public private partnership right that's precisely uh the outcome of a great public private partnership yeah it, it was just it, I, I have to tell you folks i was uh it was inspiring uh for me to watch and how um tell me though about this um uh, about how quickly it came together and um, how surprised were you uh, that we were able to get a vaccine? I think the first vaccine was announced as having been approved a few days after the election, the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, we could talk about that. And I do mention in the book, I think there was some monkey business going on there. Could have been announced a little bit earlier, but I wasn't surprised for two reasons. One is In early April of 2020, when we were interviewing candidates for the chief scientific advisory role, which eventually became Monsef Slaoui, very humble person, very confident person, he told us we could absolutely do this. This was in April. The vaccines were maybe in the first or second phase of human clinical trials. I remember conversations with him in the Oval Office. Second, we- Where he said, this can be done. We just need resources to do it. And we need to marshal a, a national effort to make it happen. And begin manufacturing right away, which is right. what we did. That's the, 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 t- tell that to the listeners. The genius of Operation Warp Speed was actually pretty simple, which was all we did uh, without cutting any corners at the FDA. Right? No, we, we didn't cut any corners in safety. 
all we did was say if if early on and correct me if i'm wrong here but if early on you have a virus in the early clinical testing that looks like it's going to work rather than waiting to all the different levels of clinical tests are done and then starting to make it what operation warp speed said was go ahead and make it and you know what if at the end of the process it doesn't work we'll we'll, we'll take it we'll we'll take Precisely the bill right and so what we took was we, we took what was the end of the process of manufacturing and layered it right on top of the research process so that the moment that, uh, uh, that the FDA said this is a safe and effective vaccine, we had, we had millions of doses available for the American people. And millions of doses, as Gus Perna promised, within 24 hours going to the American people. Right. We not and only the, had them if we available. Had, if we had done it the traditional way, would it been would it have been another year would it have been another nine months what's back of the envelope many many months uh because what, what before you, we had any before yeah. we had any vaccine what you described is we took all the activities that were done and typically in series yeah. and we did them in parallel yeah we assumed financial risk that the private sector could not bear right in most cases and the reason was secretary mnuchin came over and told us early in the process, every day the economy is running at half speed. Guess what? We're losing six to seven billion dollars of tax revenue. So the return on the investment in Operation Warp Speed accrued to the United States. So why shouldn't we take that financial risk? As you said, it's a very simple principle and it made a lot of sense. And, and I have to tell you, you, you talk about what was the fancy word you used to describe the president? That was a, what you need in an organization. An executive sponsor. Yeah. You know, Alexander Hamilton said that our Constitution was designed for an energetic executive. That was Alexander Hamilton's term. And I've always told people I knew one. Uh, yeah. The, the, I mean, the, the value here of having a president that said every day said not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. Got to happen sooner. Got to happen sooner. Was incalculable along well, the way. And I have to say something I mean, else. We were we were the task force. We were working. We yeah. were taking going from A to B, B to C, working the problems. He was the guy that was sitting at the end, you know, behind the desk in the Oval Office and saying and saying, "I need it yesterday." Well, not only that, but you remember this. Doctor Redfield remembers this. Every time we went into the Oval Office to brief the president on Operation Warp Speed about vaccines, principally, his first question was. How about therapeutics? It was. And remember his logic? His logic was. was very simple. He'd had three or four close friends die of COVID. And his yes. logic was, I know these are going to be great vaccines. They're not going to be perfect. Americans are going to want to know if they wind up in the hospital, can we cure them? Right. How prescient was that given what we're going through right now? Right. And I remember in our very first meeting, that first week of March, in the cabinet room, they, they said, if, if we really lean into this, we can have therapeutics. We can, I just call them medicines. Therapeutics is a fancy schmancy yeah. word. It's medicine. If you get sick, we get some. They said three months you could have some medicines, and uh, and and they did, and 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 literally saved hundreds of thousands uh, of lives. And anyway, uh, enough rearview mirror. I'm incredibly proud, grateful to you, Paul Mango, for your role in Operation Warp Speed, and the whole team. And Monsef Slawi does not get enough credit. Um, but now the question now is is so, and it grieves me to say this. It grieves me to say this, but the fact that in our first year with COVID, starting off with no testing, limited supplies, no therapeutics and no vaccine, that because of our healthcare workers, because of the relentless efforts and compassion of the American people, we we lost fewer Americans in our first year than the Biden administration lost in their first year when they had all the tools. They had the vaccine, they had the therapeutics, they had the supplies, they had the testing. What went wrong? Well, you alluded to this op-ed that I uh, penned uh, last week or the week before in the Washington Times. And I you wrote hubris, myopia, and inertia, the anatomy of Biden's failed COVID-19 yeah. strategy. So let's start with hubris. Um, you know what a landing team is. When a new administration comes in, right. 
they have the opportunity to interact with the existing administration. Set up desks, they organize, they come to the agencies, right. they send their people in, and your people brief, our, our people would brief their people on what's happening. Right. So on the second floor of the Humphrey Building, which was the headquarters of HHS, it's right. also where the hub of Operation Warp Speed and the right. whole COVID response was, we set up all those cubicles, all those conference rooms. They didn't show up once. Not a single person showed up. Now, of the Biden-Harris yeah. administration transition team. Didn't show up once. We had plenty of Zooms, but as everyone knows, I used to say when I was a young second lieutenant, there's no substitute for a ground reconnaissance. They didn't conduct that reconnaissance. Never came over. Okay. They never interviewed Secretary Alex Azar. Again, I'll use another military analogy. Can you imagine a commander in the middle of a raging battle? being uh, you know, a change of command and a new general's coming in and he doesn't talk to the existing one, didn't even interview him. And then you talked about Monsef Slawi, the most successful vaccine developer of our generation. They dismissed him and they brought in Dr. David Kessel. I have nothing against Dr. Kessel. He's a great public servant. He used to run the FDA, but he's a government bureaucrat. So we lost that link with the private sector at that point. Uh, Monsef knew everyone in the private Brilliant sector. Brilliant man. Deserves a Nobel Prize. for David Kessler was not a private sector guy. Yeah. Only Hubert's can explain those three actions, as far as I'm concerned. And then, as you heard Dr. Redfield say, the day they took over, they claimed we left them a mess. They had to start from scratch. No, no. And we Paul, didn't have a plan. No, okay. Yeah, the start from scratch. I'm just telling, let me take you to my living room, right? I'm sitting on the couch a week after leaving office. And I'm watching the president on some CNN town hall. And he literally said, quote, you know, when we came in, we didn't have a vaccine. <laughs> we were, Paul, back me up. We were, we were vaccinating a million Americans a day the day we left office, including Joe Biden. I was going to say that on December 21st, guess who got his vaccine? And a week later, but his vice that. president I'm got I'm remembering that all, that all right. I mean, how, does, how did that strike you? How did that, I mean, you're, you're still close to all these people yeah. that, that worked this medical miracle of Operation Warp Speed. How, how did it strike you that, that President Biden comes in and, and literally, literally refuses to give any credit whatsoever uh, to the Trump administration for seven months. I mean, I think I think he gave a speech yeah. a couple of months back where he finally, finally mentioned the president. Well, I characterize it in the book as a lack of executive presence, and here's why. Mm. Don't don't worry about me. Okay, he still had hundreds of dedicated military and career civil servants working on Operation Warp Speed on Such that day. Such a great point. How do you think they felt? Such a great point. I know how they felt because I spoke to them and morale plummeted. Plummeted. After that. Right. They were working every day, 16 hours a day, weekends. And by the way, they came in every day. They came in to work every day despite uh, COVID. And uh, all he did was disparage uh, their accomplishments. Yeah. So he hurt his own team. Yeah. And it's it just, um, that's such a great point. Because I, you know, I, like like I said, at the in the, the end of that last segment, I kind of live by that old Reagan adage: "There's no limit to what a man can accomplish in this world if he doesn't care who gets the credit." But giving credit where credit is due to the people that did the work, acknowledging the extraordinary accomplishments of Operation Warp Speed, I thought would have been unifying for the country, and I thought it would have, and I thought it would have been the most effective way to confront vaccine yeah. hesitancy. Uh, and they blew it. The other thing is you talk about, um, now we're talking about vaccines and I, I got the vaccine. I got it on national television in December. Soon. I really didn't want to because uh, I didn't, Karen and I talked about it. We prayed about it. I just said, I don't want to jump ahead of the line, but you're an old military guy. <laughs> and uh, one of my guys came to me and, and said, um, well, you know, you're, you're right. The generals eat last in the mess hall. That's the right attitude. But he said, they're first on the battlefield. Right. And I went, okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I'll, I'll get on the battlefield. I believe in this process. And Karen and I got vaccinated sitting alongside the Surgeon General. And, and hopefully it helped. So lots of focus on the vaccine. But you also, you also say in your book that they put all their chips on the vaccine and took energy off of the therapeutics and the medicines. And the diagnostics. 
and the diagnostics and the testing. Yeah. I mean, how astonishing is it to you that we are more than well past the two years of this and that we're talking about testing shortages when we reinvented testing in the middle of 2020 when, when and, and also talking about the lack of supplies on therapeutics. I had somebody pull me aside in Indiana the other day and say, they should have had an Operation Warp Speed on therapeutics. Right. Talk about that. Well, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of very exciting therapeutics that have been approved for emergency right. use authorization. Paxlovid right. is one from Pfizer. I was, I was very disappointed to learn that we didn't have 20 million doses waiting on that day. Uh, as Dr. Redfield and others know, those medicines have to go through a phase one human clinical trial, a phase two human uh, right, clinical right, right. trial, and then phase three. It wasn't like there weren't good data on this months before. They could have been making it's it. A, they could have been manufacturing right. it. Uh, right. So it was extremely disappointing. I, I hear we're going to have you know an, a sufficient supplies by September. Well, the game's going to be largely over by September. And thousands more Americans will have died because they did not use the Operation Warp Speed principle. I just, I, I actually think that it's, um, and, and of course, I, you know, the way the media has covered the Biden administration on, on, on COVID versus the way they covered the Trump administration has just been night and day. I mean, I, I literally, I, you, can, you can watch the reports on testing shortages, the lack of therapeutics, and, I, um, and never hear the administration mentioned where... Um, all of those things, uh, all of those things, as we dealt with those issues one after another, were in my in my judgment properly raised to the administration and said, "What what are you doing?" That's it's been amazing to me. But you also talk about um, um, you know, in inertia in your piece, right? Um, and one of the things I'm very very proud of, our team met every day in the White House Coronavirus Task Force from early on. We talked to every governor of every state and territory every week uh, on, on a conference call and a, and a video conference call. We were constantly collecting ground information. I remember, you remember early on, and, and uh, Bob Redfield still within earshot, when, when I said to the governors, because I was a governor, I get it, all of them said, look, you've got a strategic national stockpile. Send me my 150th of it, right? I'm one of 50 states. Send me my share. And we looked at him and he said, here's the deal. You're going to get what you need when you need it and not before. Right. Because we were looking at the data constantly. And I really believe that that enabled us to surge resources to Seattle, to New York, New Jersey, to New Orleans, to Detroit, that that as, as COVID uh, uh, unfurled around the country, we were able to put mass on point because we were following the data uh, every single day. You know, I must tell you, I've heard from governors that this administration is basically disconnected in a large measure from regular contact uh, with governors. Um, and right up until President Biden recently said, there's no federal solution, he told governors on a conference call. Talk to me about about your your suggestion that the, the, the final uh, error here is inertia. They, the, yeah. Do you sense they just lost a sense of urgency on this, focusing at the point of the need and, and defaulted back on mandates, defaulted back on, uh, on you know, um, masks and and all of the instead of instead of empowering uh, states to deal with the issues in a way that yeah. still re respects the freedom of the American people. Yeah. So I think there's two principles here, Mr. Vice President. One is uh, what you just described, and that is our second principle was uh, of strong belief in the role of the public health jurisdictions. Okay. And not the what I call the authoritarian impulses of the current administration to believe that the federal government uh, could do these things. And as leader of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, a former governor as yourself was perfect, right? Because we never uh, assumed that the federal government would know more about what I say is going on at the corner of Fifth and Vine than a local leader would know. Right. 
Right. And we 100%. always deferred to them. And our role was to provide them the resources that they needed to be successful, but let them decide. And we did this with vaccines. The only we thing we did was say- The governors decided where the vaccines were. Precisely. And right. we delivered where they wanted. We did the same thing with ventilators. We did the same thing uh, with masks. So I think that was another principle of our administration under your leadership and under President Trump's leadership, which was a federalism, basically, right? right. Uh, it does work, and that's where a lot of innovation takes place, and naturally, each jurisdiction is very different. Remember, West Virginia prioritized its teachers first for vaccines, as opposed to its healthcare workers, because Jim Justice felt right. that was very important to keep kids in school. That was, that's just fine, right? I think the second, and I write about this in the article, though, is we were very dexterous, to use a fancy word, we changed our strategy four times in seven right. months. We did. Remember, we went from containment right. to mitigation right. to absorbing surges. And then in the fall, we basically said, let's have a balance between the risks associated with the virus and the risks associated with the response to the virus. And people aren't talking enough about this. No. The impact of COVID is gonna last us generation, a generation, right? Kids not being educated drug overdose, suicides, deferred care. There are destructive, and you said this, right. there are destructive public health impacts right. from mandates, shutdowns, uh, deferred care. Uh, the it, you know It's one of the reasons why we were so anxious to open up America again. Right. Took, like I said earlier, we took a knee for 45 days, 45 days to slow the spread. That was never about stopping the virus. Right or as they were, as Biden and Harris were promising on the campaign trail, defeating the virus. Yeah. It, it was about making sure the American people, families, healthcare workers, had the tools to confront it in a free society. And uh, you're absolutely right. Your, your book covers that point so well. And uh, uh, my sense is there's been a complete lack of balance. One of the things, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna sign off here on American freedom in a second, but I'm going to give you the last word. One of the things that I was most proud of in the, the task force that President Trump assembled is that we, we, had, we had the scientists there. We had the uh, people bringing the scientific perspective. We had the economists there. We had agricultural experts there. We had people that understood the whole range so that when recommendations were brought to the president, it took in the totality of impacts on the American people. Uh, and on the nation. Uh, it, it just seems to me that th this administration, you know, denying the progress that we made early on, uh, setting out to defeat the virus instead of meeting the needs, uh, as you said, bringing that authoritarian mandate approach and a top-down approach that rejected our, our idea of empowering states and local communities to confront this in the way they see fit. And all along the way, um, uh, you know, attempting to use the, the 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 power of the state to mandate behaviors antithetical to the principles of a free society, yeah. as has us where we are today. Uh, but my hope and my prayer is because of all that that we did early on, because of the ingenuity and the compassion of the American people and our incredible healthcare workers. Uh, that uh, the day will soon come when we put this in the past. But we've got to learn these lessons. Right. And your book, again, Paul Mango, everybody, go, go out and get it, point, click right now, order it, download it, Warp Speed, Inside the Operation to Beat COVID, the Critics, and the Odds. It, it, uh, it came out in, in March of this year. It's an extremely important book and so well done. Last word. Yeah, just two things, Mr. Vice President. One, thanks you for your leadership of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. I on December 8th, when we had the distribution summit, I had the privilege of introducing you. I don't know if you remember that. I do. The, uh, South Court Auditorium, I think, of the White House. And I used a Yogi Berra quotation that said, you can see a lot by watching. And uh, as I watched you lead the White House Coronavirus Task Force, I was very impressed with the leadership and uh, Thank you, the collaboration and the spirit of uh, collaboration that you demonstrated from the top. I think lastly, though, I just want to say the book I wrote is not a political book. It's a book about a great American achievement. I think any American who picks it up and reads it uh, will be inspired, as you said, not by me or not by you or not by the president, but by a very small group of patriots who came together and gave it all. They left every ounce on the field 
and our, our private sector, which responded so well, unlike any other uh, in the world. So I hope when people read it, they understand this is about a great American achievement, not about a, a, a political hack job. Uh, Paul Mango uh, was the principal liaison between the federal government and Operation Warp Speed. And uh, Paul, I'll, I'll, I'm humbled by your kind words, uh, but I will tell you, your work, uh, Secretary Azar's work, uh, Monsef Slaoui, General Parnum, everybody involved in Operation Warp Speed, I truly do believe, uh, saved hundreds of thousands of American lives. Um, Thank you for your service to the country, every success on this book, and uh, thanks for joining us for American Freedom. Thanks for having me, Mr. Vice President. Uh, everybody, this has been great. Hope this has been as informative and invigorating for you. Thanks again to Dr. Robert Redfield, former director of CDC, and, uh, and Paul Mango, the author of Warp Speed Inside Operation uh, that beat COVID, the critics, and the odds. Uh, we'll make sure there's links associated with the podcast for all of those things. And let me thank the whole team here at Young America's Foundation. Again, this is our latest installment of American Freedom. It is sponsored by Young America's Foundation, the premier organization in America, bringing conservative ideals to the campuses across the country. You can go to yaf.org for more information on Young America's Foundation. And also, you all out in Stanford, mark your calendars, February 17th. I'm looking forward to being back on campus. For freedom, for American freedom, this is Mike Pence.